we apologise for the poor quality of the following recording of a sermon by the late Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones. Although we have digitally restored this to improve clarity, the quality is not as good as we would like. We do apologise for this, but nevertheless hope that this sermon will be a great encouragement and a blessing to you. The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, the beginning of the 15th verse. The beginning of the 15th verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But speaking the truth in love. This is, of course, a part of a larger statement. Particularly must we connect it with the previous verse and the following verse. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. But this morning we look only at this phrase at the beginning of this 15th verse. But, Speaking the truth in love. Now, here I say, we come to the positive uh, aspect of the Apostle's teaching with regard to the function of the ministry in the Christian church. The object of the ministry is to bring us all to a perfect men and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the objective. But as we've seen, in order to attain to that objective, we start where we are. And the first thing we have to do is to realize that we are children. And that we are subject to some of the characteristics of children. Children in a spiritual sense, of course. This liability to be carried about because we're unstable as children are. And particularly, as we saw last Sunday our dangerous and terrible susceptibility to the subtle teaching of uh, those who propagate error and heresy and who would ensnare and entrap our souls and beguile us even as the serpent beguiled Eve in the garden of old. Now there was the negative aspect. It is the business of the uh, offices in the church Pastors and teachers, particularly at this present time, to bring that knowledge to us in order that we may realize our terribly dangerous position. Conversion is not the end, it's the mere beginning. And we start as babes and very innocent babes in this sense, innocent of these dangers and of these troubles and problems, and therefore so tragically liable to be led astray. The New Testament, as we saw, is full of that kind of thing. The attention that is paid to it is quite extraordinary. But as children, we often don't like being taught. We like to hold to our opinions, and we want to do things in our way. But it is the business of the church, of these offices in the church, to deal with us as we are, and negatively thus to warn us and to train us out of that condition. Now then, we come to the positive aspect of all this. 
You mustn't be like that, says the apostle. You mustn't continue as children that henceforth you mustn't be any more children. Well, what then? Well, here it is. Speaking the truth in love, you may grow up into him in all things. And therefore, we must look at this uh, striking phrase. Speaking the truth in love. Now, the first thing we must address ourselves to is the this term, speaking. Because uh, while, in a sense, it is right, it, uh, it doesn't convey the full meaning of the word that the apostle used. The word that he used here is a word that is not normally or generally translated as speaking. Or, to take it the other way around, if you look up the words that are translated here as speaking, you will generally find they're not the word that the apostle used at this point. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means professing. Professing the truth in love. Uh, somebody, pointed, many have pointed out, in fact, that uh, perhaps the, the best translation of all, though it's not a pleasant translation, is this, but uh, truthing, truthing in love. What it means, of course, is that uh, we are in the truth and we are walking in the truth. Perhaps the best translation of all would be this, having or holding the truth in love. That's the best way of looking at it. We hold the truth in love. Of course, that includes uh, speaking it and uh, discussing it together and teaching it, but it isn't merely speaking. It means the whole of our deportment. It means that we be true or that we walk uh, in the truth and in love in this way. Very well, then, that is what the uh, Apostle says, that we must no more be children and pass to and fro and so on, but rather uh, holding the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things. Very well, what exactly does he convey uh, by this uh, statement? Now, I have no hesitation in asserting that at the present time there is probably no single statement in the whole of the Bible, no single text, that is so much abused as this particular statement, holding the truth in love. It is uh, probably the favorite text today in the Christian church speaking generally. This and the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, that they all may be one, are undoubtedly the two favorite texts. Uh, I mean in connection with this ecumenical movement, so-called, and this great idea of having a great world church. These are the, the statements that are most frequently quoted, that they all may be one and speaking the truth in love. It's virtually become a kind of slogan, and therefore it is important that we should examine it and consider it very carefully. Why has it thus become the favorite text? Well, I think I can show you that it is because it has been wrested out of its context. That, of course, is always an extremely dangerous thing to do. Just to take hold of a phrase and turn it into a slogan. Every statement in the scripture must always be taken in its context. It is to violate scripture, to wrest the text out like this and put it up on its own. Now, we shall see the importance of that principle as we proceed to expound. Very well, then, 
I ask again, what exactly does the Apostle mean by this? What exactly is he teaching us at this point? Let me put it to you like this. When he says holding the truth in love, he does not mean merely being nice and loving. I have to start with that negative. Because that is the way in which the text is being interpreted today. It means just being nice and loving. And that, of course, is the controlling idea at the present time. Fellowship is put into the first position. We are told that nothing is so important as fellowship. Unity is the supreme thing. You are familiar with the argument? We are told that it's impossible to evangelize apart from this unity. We are told it's impossible to expect revival apart from this unity. They say the whole explanation of the state of the church and why the masses are outside is that there is not this fellowship, which should be. So this is put into the first position. We are told that nothing today is more important than that we should all be one in that sense and that at all costs we must put fellowship in the supreme position. To that end, we are told that we must tolerate anything and everything. Everything must be tolerated. And uh, that as long uh, as a man is nice and uh, loving, and especially if he does good works, and especially if he makes a sacrifice in order to do so, but it really doesn't matter very much what he believes. What matters, we are told, is that a man should have the spirit of Christ, and that he should imitate Christ's example. That's the Christian, they say. It doesn't matter what he believes in particular about these various matters. He may be shaky on the very person of Christ. He doesn't believe in the atonement. He doesn't believe in the virgin birth. He doesn't believe in the physical resurrection. But they say, what's it matter? Look, look at the man. Look what he's doing. Look what he's sacrificed. He may have given up some wonderful post and have gone to the heart of Africa or something. There, well, they say, that's Christ's likeness. He's just following Christ's example. What's it matter that he denies certain propositions in which you happen to believe? That's the thing that makes a man a Christian. And as long, we are told, therefore, as men manifest this brotherly, friendly, Christian spirit, and as long as they do good works and they indulge in philanthropic actions, especially if it involves sacrifice, that surely nothing else matters, and that we must allow any belief they may hold, tolerate everything, and that to that end, of course, we must none of us hold any opinion too firmly, but we must always be ready to concede. But above all, we must never criticize any other view. Now that is how this phrase, speaking the truth in love, is being interpreted. It really means, is he speaking lovingly? Speaking in a loving manner, which means that you never criticize another view. That they, that they say is quite fatal. I could give you some remarkable and almost astonishing illustrations of the thing I'm saying. There's a very well-known reviewer of religious books at the present time. It's really quite humorous to notice. How, if he's reviewing a book and there is any criticism of any other view in the book, at once he says, ah, oh, of course, the spirit is wrong. 
That is, seems to be his one test of scholarship. Scholarship has come to mean that you say, oh, well, of course, uh, very interesting, there's something in it after all. There's something in everything. There, there is that point of view. And you mustn't say that this is right and that's wrong. You mustn't criticize. The criticize is to deny the spirit of Christ. It's to be entirely devoid of love. Speaking the truth in love has come to mean that you more or less praise everything. But that above all, I say, you never criticize any view whatsoever. Because there is a certain amount of right and of truth in everything after all. Well now, then the question before us is, is that a right and a true interpretation of this statement? Is that what is meant by speaking the truth in love? Well, uh, I want to suggest to you that it simply cannot be for this reason. That the apostle does not tell us here just to speak lovingly. What he says is speaking the truth. The truth. We hold what? Not a vague loving spirit, but we hold the truth in love. The very word truth, I say, makes uh, such an exposition of the statement obviously and patently wrong. But not only that. And this is where the context is so important. If it just means that, well then I ask, uh, how do you fit it in with what he's been saying in verse 14? If speaking the truth in love, holding the truth in love just means that you smile in a benign manner on anything that may be said, and say, yes, that's all right, we're all together. Well, then, uh, how do you avoid being children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine? If you say yes to everything, well, how can you possibly avoid being carried about in this way? No, the very text itself and the context makes that interpretation completely impossible. It is a denial of the apostle's statement. And we mustn't hesitate to say that. To put life or spirit or niceness or anything before truth is to deny essential New Testament teaching. Because if we put anything in the place of truth, we go back quite inevitably, I say, to the position of verse 14 where we believe anything and everything, where we take up the last thing we've heard and become excited about it and run after it. That is the inevitable, inevitable conclusion. If we say that anything comes before truth, but the apostle makes it plain that nothing is to come, we hold the truth in love. We don't just hold on to a cult of friendliness or of niceness or some sentimental notions of brotherliness. No, no. You can have all that without Christianity, but you cannot have Christianity without truth. So that whatever else it means, holding the truth in love does not mean, I say, a vague, flabby, sentimental notion of niceness and fellowship and of brotherhood. Well, what does it mean? Well, let's look at it positively. You notice that the Apostle says, holding the truth. Now, this is the point. This is the important point. 
You see, this verse is the contrast with verse 14. The very word but puts us onto that at once. You mustn't be this, but you must be that. Well, now, what are we not to be? Well, we are not to be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. This idea, that idea, and this, surrounded by odd ideas and carried away by everyone. We mustn't be that. Well, what's the opposite of that? Well, isn't it obvious? Instead of being like weather vanes turning round in every direction and believing everything, we hold to something particular. Instead of believing this one day and that the next and then another, no, no, it says the puffy must be stable. You hold on. You hold, you walk in the truth, the particular truth. You see, the context that once determines our exposition of the statement. Holding the truth is the antithesis of being carried about by every wind of doctrine. Well, then the question arises, and isn't it so simple the moment you let the Scripture speak for itself, instead of taking it out and putting it up as a slogan, look at it, what does it say? I, I've got to hold on to the truth. Well, now, how can I do so? I think that's a fair question, isn't it? If you tell me to hold on to something, I say, well, what am I to hold on to? I can't hold on to the air, you can't grasp the air in your hands and hold on to it. But I'm told to hold on to something. Well, how can I do so? It seems to me that it's just a matter of simple, elementary thinking to say this. That before I can hold on to anything, I must know what it is. You can't hold on to a thing unless you know what it is. It must be something that is capable of being held on to. And I can tell you what it is and tell you what to do. And the apostle says, yes, it is. Hold on to the truth. Holding the truth. Obviously, therefore, this truth that he's talking about is something that is capable of being defined. That, again, I think you'll agree follows of necessity. How can I judge uh, these various winds of doctrine that blow around and about me if I haven't got a standard? How do I know that these winds of doctrine are wrong and they're false? How do I detect this the slight of men and their cunning craftiness and realize that they're waiting, lying in wait to pounce upon me and to deceive me and to lead me into error. Well, how can I do all this unless I've got a standard? We believe in a gold standard. We believe in a yard measure. We've got standards in weights and measures and all these things and of necessity we must have them. Otherwise we'd never know, we could never check, we could never say that we're being robbed. You must have a standard. And it's exactly the same here. You'll never avoid being carried about by every wind of doctrine unless you've got a standard of judgment. You can't hold on, I said, to something amorphous. You can't lay hold on something that is nebulous and vague and as indefinite as the wind that is blowing in all directions. No, no, by definition, the very terms and the contrast with verse 14 insists upon our saying that the truth is something that can be defined and analyzed and stated in propositions. And yet, you see, by saying that, I'm running entirely counter to what is being said at the present time. 
What I am asserting and what I am arguing is just elementary logic and thinking. And sheer honesty with the word of God is something that is resented and rejected at the present moment. We are told today that to do this kind of thing is fatal to brotherhood and to fellowship and to friendliness. And that the moment we begin saying things like this, we are again going to cause division. There is a strong objection today to creeds and to confessions and to every form of definition. As I've already explained to you, Christianity has become just some vague, indefinite spirit. Indeed, there are leaders in the churches who state this perfectly openly in books and in sermons and in every method in which they attempt to, to convey their ideas and their beliefs. But isn't it time, my friends, we really faced this issue and examined it in the light of Scripture? How can you possibly reconcile all that with what the Apostle is saying here? And you see, the inevitable result of doing these things is that you get congresses of Christians and Jews, congresses of world faiths. We're all one, we're all climbing the same mountain, one on the east, one on the west, and we're all going to get to the top. Whether you're specifically Christian or not, it doesn't matter. That's the result of it all. And it's a denial of what the apostle is saying. He says, you can't believe every wind of doctrine. That's error. Hold the truth. I want to be careful as I say these things, but you see, this modern idea is not only a denial of Scripture, but it's a denial of the whole history of the Christian church. There are certain sections of the church that in every service such as this recite together the Apostles' Creed. They may recite the Athanasian Creed or a part of the Nicene Creed. All the great churches have got confessions of faith. The Church of England has uh, 39 articles. The Presbyterian churches recognize the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Lutheran Church on the continent has its great uh, confession. Then there is the Heidelberg Confession and Catechism and so on, the Belgic Confession. You read the history of the Christian Church and you'll come across creeds and confessions and statements of faith. Now, this is where I say I want to be careful, and yet I'm constrained to say this. This modern attitude is arrogant. It's arrogant in that it dismisses virtually the whole of church history and condemns all creeds and confessions. But let, let's look at it like this. Why did these creeds and confessions ever come into being? Where did the Apostles' Creed come from? Well, we know that it wasn't actually drawn up by the Apostles. It doesn't matter. It was drawn up by the early church in order that they might say in that succinct manner what the Apostles preached and taught. But why did it ever come into being? Why was the Athanasian Creed ever drawn up and the Nicene Creed? Now, that's, that's a very pertinent question. I think you'll agree. Was it that these men in those ancient times 
in the pre-atomic age when they'd got so much leisure and got nothing better to do and didn't have to spend so much time in looking at the television or listening to a wireless or reading morning and evening newspapers. They, they'd got so much time on their hands. Oh, they thought, let's have a theological discussion. And let's put this kind of thing down on paper. Is that it? Well, you read the history and you'll discover that it's this. Every one of those creeds and confessions was drawn up to save the life of the church. That's the answer. False teachings that come in. Errors that crept in as the scriptures prophesied they would and as the apostles prophesied they would. And there was confusion in the church and the men were leaders filled with the Holy Spirit, saw quite clearly that if this kind of thing went on, the church would be ruined and destroyed. They said, at all costs, we must put this right. So they met together in their great ecumenical councils, which just simply meant that men came from different parts of the world. Not the modern ecumenical idea. They came together, not to say we're all one and it doesn't matter what we believe. They said, we've come together in order to lay down on paper what must be believed. And if men don't believe it, we'll denounce them as heretics and we'll excommunicate them. And they did that. They said the whole life of the church and the whole future of the church is at stake. We must lay down what is true and what isn't true. There must be no confusion about these things. So they drew up their creeds. They drew up their confessions. They said these things must be believed. This is right, that's wrong. You go back and read the history. The, her the heresies and errors that came in about the person of Christ. The Arian heresy and others. And these men said, no, we mustn't yield an inch on this. If we do, we've lost everything. But all that is dismissed with a wave of the hand today. That's division, they say. That's being arrogant and saying that what you believe alone is right. You're not speaking the truth in love. No, no, they say, we must all come together and be pleasant together and smile at one another and love one another. Doesn't matter what men believe. It is, I say, not only a denial of the teaching of the scripture, it is a denial of the glorious history of the Christian church in her greatest periods. It is sheer arrogance in addition to being violation of the scripture. You cannot hold on to the truth unless you know what the truth is. Holding the truth. There are, I say, certain things that are absolutely essential. What are they? I can't take time on this this morning. Let me just mention them. First and foremost, the authority of this book. If this is not the authoritative word of God and the sole authority in matters of faith and of conduct, I simply ask, where are you? What is your authority? How do you test any wind of doctrine that may happen to blow in your direction? If this isn't supreme and final, well then there's no authority and we can believe anything we like. What next? The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be no argument about him. Son of God and son of men. 
fully God and fully men. As I have reminded you, the early church saw that if this became vague, that everything was lost. The New Testament itself is always fighting for it. Look at the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. His whole epistle is about this. God hath spoken at last in his Son. It's because they'd become doubtful about that that the Hebrews were in trouble. And he writes his great epistle to them. There must be no discussion here. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We don't argue about him. We don't argue about his virgin birth. We don't argue about his literal physical resurrection. If this isn't true, says Paul to the Corinthians, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. It's as vital as that. And then the atonement. Here again is something central and absolutely vital. That he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we may be, might be made the righteousness of God in him. There it is. The atonement. The resurrection. The physical, literal resurrection. And then as we've had occasion to emphasize already earlier in this chapter. Justification by faith only. You notice how Paul puts it to the Galatians. He says, you bring in works and you've left the, the, the grace position. You've fallen from grace. You see, these uh, teachers were suggesting to the Galatians, yes, it's all right, you're believing the gospel all right, but if you truly want to be a Christian, you must be circumcised in addition. Look here, says Paul, bring in one point of the law and you've brought it all in, and if you're under law, you're not under grace, you've lost everything. He doesn't just smile at all. White as lost as you're a Christian, be circumcised if you like. Not a bit of it, says Paul. I'll stand on this if I'm alone in the last ditch. To make any concession at this point is to give away the whole case. You notice how he stood? Justification by faith only. There is no gospel, there is no salvation apart from this. Indeed, it's all in verses 4 to 6 that we have already considered. There are, I say, certain things which are absolutely essential. And it is because all that has been forgotten that the Christian church is as she is today. You see, a revelation is being denied. Everything is philosophy. Do you read these books I have to spend a lot of my time reading them in order to answer them. But you read most of the books on religion today and you know what you'll find? You don't find expositions of scripture, but you find philosophical attempts to try to understand God and to define the being of God. It's all philosophy. It's not revelation any longer. That's why you see there's no teaching any longer. What we get now is ethical addresses. We get sentimental appeals, talk about courage, about doing your duty, political addresses. But that's not teaching. That's not doing the thing the apostle says that the apostles and, event and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers have been ordained to do. There's no teaching any longer. But it's all so vague. 
the vague idea of God and of brotherliness and of Christ-likeness and of doing good and of being loving. But that isn't teaching. And of course you can't have teaching unless you know what the truth is. The business of the church is not to speculate about God and about the person of Christ. It is to teach the doctrine, to enunciate the principles of Scripture, to build up the church in terms of this truth. And you obviously must know what it is. You don't spend the whole of your time in arguing about the preliminaries and the presuppositions. You say, here is the revealed truth. My business is to expound it. Our business, every one of us, is to understand it to believe it and to take it in. We hold the truth. And if we hold the truth, we don't speculate philosophically. We accept and we study and we teach the doctrines that have been revealed. It isn't for me to stand in the pulpit there and say, I think this. I've come to this conclusion. No, no. Thus saith the Lord. The truth. Now you notice that the scriptures are full of this. You see, Paul says in writing to those Romans, he, but God be praised, he says that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have believed from the heart that form of sound teaching which was delivered to you. But listen to him writing to Timothy. Hold fast, he says, the form, the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. He's given him a form of sound words. He doesn't write to Timothy and say, Timothy, try to catch my spirit. Uh, try to catch the spirit which you saw in me. Uh, try to keep hold on what you felt when you were listening. No, no, he says, hold fast the form of sound words. He says to the Philippians, be ye followers of me. You notice he said it to those Galatians. Be as I am, says the apostle. He, not because this is my idea, but he says I have received a revelation of truth. I wasn't taught it by men. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which I preached was not taught me of men, but by the revelation of God. It isn't his idea. It's the truth that Christ has given him that he may give it to others. And he tells Timothy to do the same thing. That which you have received, impart to others, he says, that they may teach others in turn. But you can't teach a vague spirit. This is precise truth. These are propositions about God and the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work, and the Holy Ghost and his work, and the church, and all these things. They're in the 39 Articles. They're in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They're in all the creeds and the confessions. That is the truth. I've had to emphasize that at length because there's no point in going on to the next statement unless we are clear about that. We hold the truth. Yes, but we must hold the truth in love. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to do. What does he mean? Well, I say again that you must interpret this in the light of verse 14. And you remember in interpreting verse 14 last Sunday, I laid great stress upon the strength and almost the violence of the language which the apostle uses. You notice that he refers to these false teachers as almost like beasts of prey with their 
slight and their trickery and chicanery and uh, the, with their cunning craftiness they lie in wait to deceive. They track their innocent victims and pounce upon their beasts. Indeed, he did call them ravening wolves as our Lord did. Yet here he is, you see, talking about uh, speaking the truth in love. Is the apostle contradicting himself? The vile and strong language in verse 14, speaking the truth in love in verse 15. All I'm saying is that you've got to interpret this statement in verse 15 in the light of what he's been doing in verse 14. I say again, you see, it doesn't just mean being nice. The Apostle Paul wasn't a nice man in that sense. A man who's filled with love isn't just a nice man. I think that's something glandular or hereditary. That's something which is purely physical. No, no, this is love about which we are speaking. Is there a contradiction, I ask? No, patently there isn't. Well, how do we explain it? Well, it's this, you see. What the Apostle is saying is that while we do hold the truth, we watch our spirits because those false teachers are liable to upset them. We've got to oppose them and we've got to do so strongly. But watch your spirit, says Paul. And especially watch your spirit amongst one another. He's here talking, to what they, uh, talking about what they do amongst one another, speaking the truth in love to one another. This is in the realm of the church. With regard to those false teachers... There's the language in verse 14. Now we're amongst one another. And we are speaking the truth and holding the truth in love. What's he mean? He means this. That while we emphasize the absolute necessity of definitions and creeds, we must never be hard and rigid. We must never be legal. We must never be intolerant. We must never do it in such a way as to give the impression that our one concern is to prove that we are right and everybody else is wrong. We must never do it simply to win an argument or a dispute. That's always wrong. Our spirit is wrong. We've all been guilty of this. We've simply been out to prove or to win an argument. The moment that grips us, our spirit is wrong. We must speak the truth in love. The party's, uh, a party spirit is always wrong. Labels are always wrong. That's why I never use them and I hate them. Stock phrases are always wrong. That's not speaking the truth in love. There are people who are taken up by party spirits and, uh, and labels and if you don't bring out the shibboleth always they begin to doubt you. I remember a good friend once uh, suggesting to me that he was a bit disappointed in my exposition of the second chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians because I had, he noticed that I literally hadn't mentioned the word election as I went through the whole chapter. My simple reply to him was, the text doesn't mention it. But you see, he belonged to a party. He was becoming doubtful of my position. Party labels, slogans, shibboleths, words, phrases, stock phrases... All that is indicative of a wrong spirit. Because it means, you see, that the man is intellectual only. And we must never be intellectual only. This truth must never be approached simply in, with the intellect. If my heart isn't moved, if I don't feel it, well, my spirit is wrong. 
There must be passion in connection with truth. There must be emotion. There must be feeling. A truth which is only held in the intellect is hard and it's arid and it's dry. And a man who has it only like that never speaks the truth in love. No, no, rather, you see, our desire should be this. We put the truth strongly. Why? Well, in order to make it clear. In order to help. In order to win. We should do it because we are sorry for people who are misguided and led astray. Not in order to show they are wrong and we are right. No, but in order to bring them to the truth. We should do it therefore with humility and recognizing our own fallibility. That we all make mistakes. We all may be in error. We, almost, we must always remember that. We must do it with humility. We must be careful that we don't rest the scriptures or in some manner or other misinterpret them. We must rightly divide the word of truth. In other words, we mustn't start by denouncing. We start by explaining and by expounding. If I believe the other man's view is wrong, I don't attack him. I first of all put the truth to him. I try to put it in as persuasive a manner as possible. I try to win him to it. You mustn't start by denouncing. That's the wrong spirit. That's not love. Indeed, we must go further. We must have sympathy with this man. We must recognize that perhaps he's just a babe in Christ. And that he holds the wrong view simply because he's a babe. He hasn't been taught. He's swallowed up one of these false teachings. We should have a sense of compassion towards him. As our Lord looked upon the people and saw them as sheep without a shepherd, so we should look at those who are young in the faith and bear with them. And one does have to bear a lot and exercise great patience. Look at the apostles doing it in 1 Corinthians 8 over the question of meat offered to idols. He was perfectly clear about it. But he says, look here, if my eating this meat that was once offered to idols is going to make my brother to stumble, I'll eat no more meat while the world standeth. He had a right to, but he isn't going to exercise it. He knows the weaker brother can't see the thing, and he bears with him and is patient with him. He wants to win him. Read 1 Corinthians 13, and there it is all for us. But let me be perfectly clear about this still. All this doesn't mean that we compromise. We don't compromise on the truth. We hold the truth at all costs. Yes, but we hold it in this way of love. In order to persuade people and to win people and to try to enlighten them. It doesn't mean compromise. It doesn't say it doesn't matter. Let them believe what they like. As long as they're living a good life or showing a Christian's not at all. Error must be exposed. Verse 14 comes before verse 50. And you see, love is a very wonderful thing. Love isn't just flabby sentiment and weakness. Love is strong and love is true and love is pure. And you know, when you love a person, uh, what you really want is the best that, that, per that you can ever get for that person. Love sometimes has to hurt, doesn't it? We have sometimes to be cruel to be kind. The parent who never corrects the child is a very poor parent. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he calleth. And if you're really animated by a spirit of love, you'll be so anxious that that loved one comes out of error and ceases to be a child, that you may have to speak very severely to him at times, and chastise him, and rebuke him, and show him the error of his position with all the strength that you have in your possession. 
Love doesn't just mean smiling at anything and being indulgent and saying it doesn't matter as long as we all use the name Christian and somehow are all together. That isn't love. Love is one of the most virile, strong, magnificent things in existence. And love is so powerful that it will hurt that object of its love in order to win it and to save it and to safeguard it from something terrible. Oh, I can close by just reading to you again what I read to you at the beginning. If you want to see all this in practice, look at the epistle to the Galatians. You notice how he starts off in chapter 1 with his absolute certainty. And then you notice how in chapter 2 he tells them that he had to withstand Peter to the face. Is this just a bit of Paul's arrogance again? Is it just that this man was a legalist who had a kind of lawyer's brain? He alone was right and everybody wrong. I withstood Peter to the face, he said. It wasn't a small thing to do. Peter was an apostle and had been an apostle before Paul. And yet he said I had to withstand him to the face. Why? Well, if he hadn't done so, the whole of Christianity may have been shipwrecked. The Apostle saw perfectly clearly that Peter was compromising and compromising on this vital truth of justification. And he withstood him. And Peter, because he was an Apostle and a man of God and full of the Spirit, he saw it and he yielded and he gave in. And Paul won Peter. Peter didn't resent it. Peter undoubtedly thanked Paul for it. That he'd saved him from this subtle error. But then do you notice how he puts it in that fourth chapter? You see, he'd had to pull up these Galatians and write very strongly to them, and they didn't like it. Some of them said he was being objectionable. He says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? The childish Galatians, because he told them the truth, they thought he'd become an enemy, that he was a hateful person and that he hated them. Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He says, no, it's love, it's because I love you I've told you the truth. And so he puts it in verse 19. My little children, of whom I travel in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. He loved them as a mother loved her children. And it was because he loved them and valued their souls that he spoke so strongly against that particular heresy that had troubled and ensnared them. He speaks with violence in this epistle to the Galatians. Why? Well, because he loves them. He hates the error. He loves them. And because they can't see it, he's going to put it very strongly, even standing and withstanding to the face an apostle like Peter, for the sake of the truth. But he does it in love, as a mother, her children, and so he wins them. Very well, it seems to me that the principle which should govern us in all this is that well-known principle that puts it all like this. In things essential, unity. In things indifferent. And there are many such things which are indifferent, which we can't prove one way or another. In those things, liberty. But in all things, charity. In things essential, unity. In things indifferent, liberty. In all things, charity.
holding the truth in love.